At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome, everyone, once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me is my loyal friend, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Very good, Mark. How are you today? I'm very well. I would like to make a declaration here right at the opening of the show of this, our board gaming podcast about board games. I don't want to step on any toes, but I just, I, I have to say it. I have to get it off my chest. Games are real fun. It's been another stellar week of games. It's deep. Ever, it's deep, it's controversial, but we hit hard here, and we hit incisive here at So Very Wrong About Games. Ever since I got back to Kingston, there has been a, in the words of Michael Walker, a plethora of excellent gaming experiences. Now, not all of them have been stellar, and of course, that is one of the reasons why we are here, to talk about those as well. Then again, in the classic tradition of raving about 10 games and mentioning that one was subpar, we will be branded as the most negative podcast ever, but such is the way of things. I'm so, feeling pretty so, pro so negative. Right now. Oh yeah, so, uh, so negative. We do it for the clerks. Yeah, it's we, all... we're bad faith actors, and we we load in five percent of negative content. We got that eye candy thumbnails, and we just go for the clicks, baby. Hundred percent. That's why it's it's cats, dogs, negative reviews of board games. We know what drive traffic. With that in mind, we're going to mix things up. We're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. The news and why it doesn't matter. And then our feature game, which is Sakura Arms. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got to play Great Wall. Now, this got some buzz twice. Once when the Kickstarter started, and then once again when the Kickstarter fulfilled. Because it's a very grandiose game, as they say. You have these giant walls. You have two different pledges. You have one with meeples, one with all of these figures. Some people might have said gimmicky. I thought gimmicky. I thought maybe no gameplay, but there was. We got to play it. It was this very interesting worker placement with many different uh, mechanisms that have a hook. It's like they saw Gugong and they said, hey, that's a pretty good Great Wall action space. Let's take that and we'll use that whole Great Wall action for, <laughs> for a few of our spaces. Well, so because it is, it's kind of odd, right? It's because the same sort of thing, like these action spaces only trigger when it's full. Yes. In the game called Great Wall, and the Great Wall space in Gugong only triggers when it's full. I was waiting for the connection. I was trying to process through, but you got it. You stuck the landing. Well done, Walker. You're right. That is it. That is, it is an unusual gamey element that exists and is satisfying in both games. 
I did think the historical grounding, as you would expect, steeped in some Orientalism, all that shame and honor and dragon iconography and this, that, and the other. And it's a classic case of, let, let us call this the Fister move. It's not the full Fister. The full Fister is, I'm going to theme this after this, hor- this horrible historical tragedy, but pretend it was all happy in sunshine. The half Fister, which is what I will describe as, as the Great Wall, is, well, we're going to theme this loosely after a historical event, but we don't care about the details, so we're going to smudge all the details. Not a deal breaker, but objectionable nonetheless. So what you're doing in, in the Great Wall is you get to play a card. It gives you a bunch of abilities. It lets you put out some workers. And there's all sorts of – no, I shouldn't say all sorts of different spaces, Mark. There's two kinds of spaces. There's spaces that, like we just talked about, will trigger when they're full. And there's spaces that will trigger every player turn. So I wasn't interested in the initial wave. I think we actually talked about it in an episode of Pledge of Indifference. And one of the things that I say about projects like this is could be great, probably won't be. Because random, medium-heavy Euro game can be done really well, but it's very easy to make a mediocre version. Like, there's a number of missteps you can make, and we're talking about unknown designers. Awaken Realms is a publisher. We've liked a number of their output, but also a lot of their stuff is dodgy as all get out. And so this was really just a wait-and-see kind of situation. And I'm very pleased to report that I had a great time with The Great Wall. I thought it was very, very good. It is one of those situations that it really speaks to my set of preferences when it comes to Euro games of this type. One of them is the scoring is relatively focused. Most of the action is focused around defending the eponymous Great Wall, and so that makes perfect sense. You're placing troops, you're trying to organize your troops, save your troops. Buying troops is kind of your infrastructure, and that's kind of an interesting thing. You're interested in keeping them alive and redeploying them strategically, and you're very, very concerned about attacks going badly because it will redound to your disadvantage. Unlike, say, Perseverance, the Castaway Chronicles, where we thought the attacks were one more thing and largely inconsequential, I wanted Castaway Chronicles to feel a little bit more like the Great Wall. Not coming in. This isn't one of those cases like, I have decided what the game should be. You need to be careful. Anytime you give a, a slightly less than glowing review of a game, everyone crawls out of the word work and says, yeah, I played the game once and clearly they didn't like it because they wanted it to be something else. Yeah, I wanted it to be better is what I wanted it to be. But in the case of the Great Wall, the level of focus and the level of competition to defend the wall best... I think really helps with both the player interaction and what's going on there. And on top of that, the resource generation is actually kind of clever. There are a couple clever bits with the oversight elements. And because with worker placement games, it is so, so easy. Like After the Empire, for example, is the paradigmatic example. I think it's the last truly execrable worker placement game I ever played. You place your workers to get your resources. You place your workers to turn the resources into points. And you do this over two hours. And that's what we're going to call a game. The Great Wall doesn't feel like that. It feels like an evolving dynamic element where there's not a whole lot of infrastructure, but there's a little bit. There's not a whole lot of focus on resource generation, but there's just enough. I found it very pleasing. And there's all sorts of paths. You're going to get a asymmetric leader that only has powers that only you can use. You're going to have strategy cards. You're going to have scroll cards. All of these things are going to change your tableau. And you did say that uh, the scoring's focused, but there are different ways. I think our scores were fairly close and there are some different paths. You can like provide resources for other people to defend the wall as Chip did. And so you don't always have to have troops out there. You can be building the walls. You can be aiding resources. You can be doing other things, but I think you're right. It all redounds to the defense. 
the defense is what uh, is the overall art, uh, uh, sort of both thematically and mechanically. It's what allows everything to hang together in the same way that not a very similar game, but also another medium heavy worker placement game I enjoy, Barrage. At the end of the day, it's all about power infrastructure. Are you generating power? Or are you just building? Eh, sometimes there are different strategies there. That's fine. But at the end of the day, it hangs together far better than a random pointillistic point salad experience, which tends to feel unfocused with little player interaction, no, no thematic coherence. And I like the fact that there's so many different uh, ways that the game will end. It has these nice shame tokens. And I love the fact if you don't defend the wall enough, the game will end prematurely. Yes, that's exactly what happened in our game. Now, there's some chatter online about the generals being unbalanced. I don't know if that's true. We only played the one time. It very much is the case that the initial gloss seemed to be everything is really powerful when used appropriately. And so there was times, I think, when we all deployed something and uh, Walker, always one for sober second thought, said, that's broken. But we'll see how this shakes out. There are other modes. Again, I mean, my, my attitude towards the other modules and other expansions and other ways to play is very much like my, my attitude was towards the game itself. Well, they could be good. I don't have a whole lot of confidence. Now, I was impressed with the base game. Who knows? But we'll be eager to see more of what the Great Wall has to offer, I think it's fair to say. The Great Wall is designed by Camille Sanex Chesla. Robert Plezovitz and Lukas Lawyerchik, published by Awaken Realms, and it's gone through several rounds of crowdfunding. You can get all the way to from the base level with meeples to they will take all your money, I'm sure. So we played Stars of Akarios today. Uh, I want to make these comments brief, largely because a few weeks ago I said... We're still really enjoying the spaceship combat, but there are kind of three game modes that Stars of Akarios offers. There's space exploration, which has been negligible, but fine. It has done exactly what it needed to do and no more. There's been the space combat, which has been very enjoyable. And then there's planetary exploration, which we had done once, and I was worried that they would try to make it too prominent. Do you remember my saying that, Walker? I do. We played Stars of Akarios today for two hours, and it was exclusively planetary exploration and it was it was bad i did not enjoy it i didn't mind it too much there was a little bit of uh we didn't really look at the there's some so there was a symbology error and it might have made the go maybe half an hour to 45 minutes longer than it should have okay that's fair I'll, okay i'll i'll take the blame for no that. no I, I'm, this is not blame no because, no, no, no because I, like you I said you. the symbology was a bit messed up and so there was a, a, a small mistake made and it might have cut down the time a little bit i was waiting for it to end after 45 minutes I think the longest I'm willing to play Seventh Continent, which is exactly what it is, it's structurally very, very similar. Yes, the action resolution is slightly different. It's a dice-based system rather than card-based system. And the the, the pilot stats are entirely incidental as, as well they should be. But after the 40, 45 minutes, of the, let, let's just get this over with. I, I knew where we wanted to go. We were following the directions as best we could. But it was just... Uh, now, and it seems clear, if this is to be con abstracted away and elaborated on in future installments, this is how you get your ship upgrades. This is how you get your new te technologies, the new the, the new systems, the new weapons. If that's true, I'm not looking forward to that going forward. It is a way. Yes. I and, just hope it's not a primary way. And I do want to defend it because we were given options almost right at the beginning to get back into space. And we just, just decided not to take those options. Point taken. Right? So I think they might have opened it up for you to follow your bliss, right? Mm. If if that planetary okay. exploration is not your thing, then then you know do you do the brief thing and it says, hey, well this just happened. Do you want to 
continue this out in space, then go ahead and do that. I see. So maybe, but then we're going to miss out. It's very, uh, for those who did Sleeping Gods, or maybe a lot of the games are like this now, it very much works on this uh, keyword sort of basis, where when you do a mission, it gives you a keyword, and when you find another area, it says, well, do you have this keyword? Then you get to open up this other thing. So it works on that. So if we're going to not explore, we're going to miss out on the, some of these keywords, but I feel as though it's just going to let us go through it and just miss out on some things. You know, you're right. And and this is true of a lot of video games, too. I remember this primarily uh, for what it's worth, Dragon Age Inquisition. It did a very, very bad job of communicating to you. You don't have to stay in the starting area, and a lot of people bounced off of it hard, and I found it a miserable experience. And you're right. About 45 minutes to an hour into our planetary exploration, there was a lead we wanted to chase down. It seemed like a side story. It seemed like a side mission. And we had already had this fixed idea of the other thing that we were here on this planet to do. In hindsight, we really should have said, oh, here's a thing we're interested in. Let's pursue this. And I think going forward, that's what we should do to really see if the system can accommodate that. If the system can't and forces us to go through the other stuff, that's a serious problem. If the system is sufficiently flexible to allow us to progress the main story, only chasing the leads we like, well, that would be great. You've opened my eyes, Walker. Thank you very much. I feel better about Stars of Icarus after talking about it with you. But I think we can all agree, nonetheless, today's session was painful. Uh, 100%. All right. And that was Stars of Icarus, our ongoing campaign. Designed by Brendan McCastill and Jonathan Thanks. Thwaites. Published by Oom. Um. Um. I got to play Messina 1347. Mark, Messina is an Italian city. You have to sort of minimize the plague that's going through Messina, bringing the occupants of Messina to your estate and putting them in quarantine, and then either getting them to do stuff while in quarantine or putting them in your state if they're not, and then repopulating parts of the city all the while, you know, doing other stuff. And this is published by Delicious Delicious Games. It is another uh, Vladimir Suchi game from Underwater Cities and pra Praga Kaput Rigny. He co-designed it with Fernandez Aparicio. And I really enjoyed it. Everyone at the table enjoyed it. It is a great game. It has sort of like the movement feel of Yokohama where uh, you're going to choose one of your lieutenants. He's going to move for free one space in the city or pay some coins to move further. He activates it, rescues the people there. I'm looking forward to playing it more. I read some of the rules. It looks promising. I, I'm, I'm willing to give it a try. As I've said before, Vladimir Suki games so for a large extend I, I worry that they're all kind of similar you played one you played one you played them all so pick your favorite stick with that one Messina the flow machine is fantastic you can watch the play on our YouTube live channel we were done it was very quick six turns very interesting game yeah it seemed pretty clean for a sucky yeah very clean so I don't know whether that's the input of his co-designer Vladimir Suki doesn't do a whole heck of a lot of co-designs and I'm not familiar with other work of uh, Fernando Sericio, but as I say, I, I, I was more enthusiastic about this than I was about Praga Kepet Regni, put it that way. I got to try So Clover. So Clover is by François Ramin, by Repo Production. So Clover is kind of sort of a riff on the same broad genre as Just One, namely a sort of clever word party game. Long story short, not to belabor the details which are hard to convey just with words, 
you have a, a two words that you have to come up with a clue, a third word that will link them together. And there's this sort of puzzle of cards that then your colleagues have to put together using only the clues that you gave to guide them. And this led to some really clever bits because there were some real room for creativity with the clues. I remember one in particular where there was a card for red and a card for marriage and the uh, the clue that the person came up to link them both was USSR. And I thought that was pretty neat. And there was lots of opportunities as well for misdirection because a new random card is introduced by the game that the clue giver never saw. And you look and see how all your clues fit the new random card ever so well. And or you start wanting to throttle Worm Boy because he starts talking about how Tulip and Helmet obviously match each other when... No, they don't, but Worm Boy's going to Worm Boy. You know, it's, it's just the nature of, of his worms. What, what can you say? I thoroughly enjoyed So Clover. It was aggressively cute and very, very engaging. The scores don't matter. They don't even... That was one thing that I wish they had done in the style of just one. A sort of, sort of aggressively nigging score chart on the back. It's like, oh, you scored 12 points. That's awfully cute. When are you starting grade school? Yeah. Which <laughs> I love the deduction part, right? Where because if what if something's a little more difficult, you sort of like can backtrack. It's like, well, this is obviously that, which means this could be you know what I mean it's like sort exactly. of like interesting deduction. You start part. with a strong corner because right. the two edges of that card fit so well with the two clues, and then you work out for that. And then invariably there's something where it's really a head scratcher, but sometimes that's broken by someone making a really, really, really clever inductive leap. So clever was a joy. It was really, really good. I want to track down a copy. I think it's just as good as just one from my experience, and that's high praise. Mark, we got to experience a game called Rush Out. Sorry. We got to experience a game called Rush Out. This is designed by Thomas DuPont, the same designer of Denia. And this is published by Sit Down. These guys really like their exclamation points. They're very excited. They like screaming all over the place. So what you do in Rush Out, Mark, is you, as you well know, is you roll dice over and over and over and over again. And then you roll them some more. Now... Unlike Project Elite, where you have some choices to make, where you, <laughs> there are some aliens that are are move faster than others, so you want to take them out first, or your weapon happens to be t- particularly good against the boss, or decisions like this, or you want to fast move to the objective or pick up more weapons, something where you have uh, choices. This is just straight up rolling for symbols and putting the symbols on the card, and yeah. Rush out. <laughs> so it's one of those games where there's a whole bunch of different scenarios and it gradually introduces more and more modules. We played three times in succession. Every session I felt was better than the last, but that's not saying much. The rule book isn't really organized well to give you something akin to the full game. I don't even know what the full game looks like. It reminded me a little bit, actually, again, very different games of Taverns of Tiefenthal, where, you know, not a whole lot of game there. You might as well jump in with all the modules. And the fact that we weren't given that option with Rush Out, I think, played to its detriment, because, quite frankly, it left us a bit sour, when maybe with a lot more modules, we'd feel a little bit better. One of the modules that was introduced did introduce a little bit of choice. It's a 1v-all game, and the module that, that we played that introduced a little bit of choice had 
had the bad guy handing demerit cards out to people, curses that either locked one of their dice away or prevented them from using a certain kind of die face. And then you have this choice. Do I keep plugging away at the common objectives or do I take some time out and encourage my fellow players to take some time out to clear the curse that's sitting out in front of me? Things like that. And I could easily imagine a couple more modules like that, a couple more elements to... To, to, to triage, and you might have something more along the lines of an escape curse of the temple. Not necessarily our favorite game of this ilk, but as I commented, and I, I stand by, rolling dice as fast as you can is still fun. You can make a decently engaging activity out of rolling dice as fast as you can if you want to. I will happily play uh, Escape Curse of the Temple that's in front of my face. I prefer games like Project Elite. My favorite version of this game is still Space Cadets Dice Duel because I think it has the most satisfying elements of decision-making, a sort of tactical map and team-versus-team combat going on. But as far as an overall structure to roll dice as fast as possible. The first scenario did strike me as more or less of a waste of time. And I, I'm i vaguely curious about what the fullness of the game offers, but quite frankly, I'm not interested in chasing it down if it's going to take yet more incremental, unsatisfying plays to get there. So I'm a little more positive on it than you are, but not by a huge margin. Well, maybe if we ever do try it, we'll go right to the end and, and throw it all in. But this is it. I don't know if that's how the game works. Not all the modules seem to be compatible with each other. Having taken a little bit of a glance forward, some of them are mutually exclusive. And so some of the scenarios might be radically different than the other scenarios. It's tough to tell. But having played the first three, I agree with you. There's not a whole heck of a lot there. Certainly not in the first two. Rush out. Rush out. If I ever see it on the table, I'm going to rush out. Good thing we're not eligible for any words anymore. I, I played Vengeance Roll and Fight under the same topic of rolling dice as fast as you can. This is the Roll and Write-ish variant of Vengeance designed by Gordon Kaleha. The Roll and Fight version is additionally co-designed by Norley Lubbers and David Zurze. It was fulfilled by Mighty Boards recently after a successful Kickstarter. We previewed this several months ago with a pre-production copy. One of the things we commented at the time was that I really missed a lot of the thematic elements. Vengeance is one of my favorite theme-driven games because it seeks to emulate a revenge movie and it does it really, really well. And it's incredibly satisfying on that level. The characters are very memorable. The people that it introduces, both the villains who've done these terrible things to you, the terrible things that they do to you, the characters, even the scenes are very visually compelling. And Vengeance Roll and Fight strips away too much of that for my tastes. Like, for example, you don't have a wronging phase. Now, granted, the wronging phase required separate decks of cards and an entire procedure, and Vengeance did have a, a number of interlocking rule systems that some people would have rather jettisoned. But, at the end of the day, it gave context for what was going on, and your murder sprees took on a, a certain air as a, as a consequence. In Vengeance Roll and Fight, there's no clear evidence that any of these people did anything to you. <laughs> You're just showing up and killing them all. One thing they could have done, and I remember making this a suggestion at the time was your character card, your character trait is now strictly a disadvantage. They could have made that the wronging, just like put put a bit of text explaining that your your detriment is as a function of a particular injury or mis a misfortune you've had suffered at the hands of these gangs. Maybe put a tiny bio on the back. I think this is one of, one of, the, one of those instances where a little bit of flavor text would have gone a long way because Vengeance does a great job of selling a narrative and Vengeance Roll and Fight does not. That having been said, the real-time dice rolling in Vengeance Roll and Fight is very satisfying. Now, I only played Solo. Solo Vengeance Roll and Fight is strange in that you only have 30 seconds to roll your dice. 
that is really not very long <laughs> at all. And I remember rushing the game while playing multiplayer in, in, in Vengeance Roll and Fight. I don't think I shortened it to 30 seconds, even when I was the one who was ending it. I could be wrong. It's tough to tell. I'm very eager to play again. It's still got the same marvelous art assets. It's got a lovely dice activation system. You're basically trying to roll to make these combos. And of course, like most systems of this ilk, with the exception of Rush Out, actually, that's one way which is different. There is a bad result, which locks the die, but there are ways to mitigate that and making those decisions on the fly is really one of the the core things that you're doing in a game of Vengeance Roll and Fight. I'm a huge fan of Vengeance Roll and Fight. It's eminently satisfying. It's brutally quick, whether you're playing solo or multiplayer. I miss the narrative. I don't know how much you could have put the narrative back in, but as it is, it is far more thematically satisfying than, oh, I finished this row. I have all the yellows. That gives me 10 points. What are the yellows? Well, they're these yellows, you see. There's a little bit of that, you know, why... Is going through this room give me an extra five points, having killed all the gunmen adjacent to that points? Eh, who knows? But I got to kill some gunmen. So <laughs> so it's something. Do I wish there's some sort of fusion between Vengeance Roll and Fight and Vengeance the core game? Absolutely. Do I frequently wish for impossible things? 100%. It's my prerogative as a critic to be an, a relentless hypocrite and to demand for things that are impossible, and such is the way of things. I love Vengeance Roll and Fight. I love Core Vengeance. They're both marvelous experiences, albeit very different. The one thing that unites them, as I said, are their art assets, which remain incredibly well executed. I'm a big fan of Vengeance Roll and Fight. We both got to play a game called Project Blue L or Project <laughs> Blue Squiggly. I think it's just called Project L. Project L. This is designed by Mikel Mikes, Jean Sukal, and Adam Spanel. That's pretty good. I, think I, like I don't that. know about that, but go, keep going. Published by Board Cubator. I do like that publisher name, though. That's so good. Yeah. So this is a, a Tetris type game you are trying to fulfill these contracts it'll give you like a shape and then you'll have a bunch of very nice tactile plastic tetris like things that you need to foot fit in this nicely two-layered board and there's lots of de decisions to make here because uh you get to do three actions and the actions are placing bits on your card taking new cards or doing what the key thing is, I believe it's called a master action. And a master action lets you put a piece on all of the orders you have in front of you. So trying to organize this so you get the most out of that action is, I think, the key to the game. Because putting on three pieces is much better than just putting on one. Hold on, let me write that down. No, I agree with you. This is a game of incredible simplicity, and Project L lives or dies by the master action. Without the master action, I don't know if the game would really work. It would be, it, it would function, but that simple addition makes all the difference. And so it really gives a sense of infrastructure, for lack of a better word, forcing you to take an extra puzzle, perhaps before you would otherwise, forcing you to care a little bit more about your supply of pieces than, than you would otherwise. And so it really just, it's like a force multiplier to the central puzzle solving. And it's one of the reasons why I found the game as playable as it was, because as I made very clear on the stream, I do not like special puzzles. And managing the spatial puzzle aspect of Project L still caused me conniptions. You, you, you said that on the uh, stream? Yeah, it may have come up once or twice. Gotcha. But because there was this aspect of bootstrapping, getting getting some pieces from very, very simple puzzles, that part I very much appreciated, and then leveraging your supply of pieces to make more efficient master actions where you could compensate for your lack of ability to make truly efficient spatial 
positioning. You can instead have an infrastructure that would that would compensate for that. I appreciated that a great deal. Now, I I was a little bit concerned at the end of Project L when all of our scores appeared to be within one or two of each other, but. Sidewinder, who'd played before, completely stomped all over us. That made me much, much happier. Because there's a fair number of games, especially Euro games, where you play the game, it's like, oh, that was fun. I felt like I had some control. I felt like I had some choices. I felt like I had some trade-offs. And then everybody gets the same score. It's like, maybe there aren't trade-offs and choices. I mean, sometimes maybe it's just because we all played just as well. But I was very, very pleased to see that Sidewinder reported, yeah, I did much, much better this game than I did in in the previous game of this that I played, leading me to believe that there's uh, a skill ceiling involved. So that, 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 that Grow. Yeah, really yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed Project L much, much more than I thought I would. And you're absolutely right to emphasize the components. The components really help solidify the experience, the dual layer board and the lovely little tactile pieces. It Without that, I think the game would be much, much less successful. Agreed. Play the game of Ark Worlds, MOBA-inspired hero engagements game. Now that's a that's a title for that's you. A, that's a mouthful right yeah. there. This is not an expansion to Ark Nova. This is just its own thing. This was an independently produced, kickstarted game, but I am a sucker for anything that says that it's going to try to replicate a MOBA experience. Now, Ark Worlds, a MOBA-inspired hero engagements game, is perhaps less MOBA-adjacent than most of the things we've tried. I would put it close to a game called Radiant that we've talked about in years past, which is called the Offline Battle Arena. There, at least, you have lanes and you have towers to destroy. Here, there's a notion of towers, but it's all very, very heavily abstracted. You're mostly just playing out a line of heroes, and you activate abilities back and forth, and then at the end of end of that, you see what's left alive, and that will just effectively just rack up a number of points for you. There is, however, an interesting trade-off between minions, which will rack up those points, and the heroes, which are necessary to protect those minions. That part I thought was neat and perhaps the most evocative of what was going on in a MOBA, because for me, as somebody who doesn't play a lot of MOBAs but loves MOBA-style board games, the interplay between heroes and minions, I think, is what really drives a lot of the appeal. And that's one of the reasons why Battle for Paternia didn't really do a whole heck of a lot for me, because there are no minions at it involved whatsoever. Uh, we did not finish the game, however, and that is because I'm an empathetic human being and I can tell when my, my the person I'm playing with is having a miserable time of it. I think it was pretty well over, though, anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. That's probably true, too. Walker, why don't you just repeat what you said at the end of our game of Arc Worlds? I'm just saying it's, it's, a, it's a combat, like a, it's a two-player dual combat game. Yes. And I, and I just do not enjoy those types of games. It very much... You also uh, hated Radiant. As I hated Radiant. It, yes. This this game also, I believe, leaned pretty heavily on whoever's winning gets to win more. Because whoever's winning be a fair bit of that, yeah. gets to keep this card, it's the gate card, and then it lets you attack the jungle first every turn. So you have the first opportunity to get the best card from there, which is only going to make it easier for you to do better in this round, which will let you go first, which will get you the best card in the next round. Well, it, it depends. That element, that element of initiative is a function of the value of your surviving here heroes. Whether you're winning is a function of the value of your surviving minions. If you're winning in both, then yes, the steamroll is potent. It might be interesting in a different game where one player was dominating in one area and the other was dominating in a different. But that we wouldn't know. We didn't really see that. And mostly, uh, just to follow up on your comment, it was pretty much decided in the first round. And I agree that that's not necessarily what you want out of a two-player card battler like that. It doesn't have those interesting trade-offs where you're activating these heroes and 
if they're completely knocked out, they don't get to activate. So as they get wounded, you want to activate those heroes before you activate the ones that aren't wounded. So it's this sort of back and forth and you just have to make sure you're activating them in the right order. Knowing more on this later, I'm sure, knowing what your opponent's cards can do and stuff like that. I did like its approach to not quite deck building. At the start of the game, you have your heroes, and your starting deck consists of some set minions and the ultimates of all those heroes, and you might add some more buffs and some more minions over the course of play. So there's not really a whole heck of a lot of luck of the draw. Your deck is going to remain relatively skinny, and you're going to be playing out, you can even play out the same cards round after round after round if they survive. And so there is this, again, this kind of MOBA-esque element of killing a hero brings them out of commission for several rounds, and that is one of the key rewards. But all told, I it did feel a lot more like a standard, I have cards that smash your cards card battler, as opposed to a slightly more positional, slightly more MOBA-type experience when compared to something like Radiant, even something like Elo Darkness, which despite its incredible bizarre nature, had a number of interesting flourishes. So it was okay, but the fact that you detest the genre so much, this is not going to be one of those that I add to the pile and look at longfully and say, oh, why will no one play these games with me? And that was Arc World's MOBA-inspired hero engagements game, The Title That Never Ends, by Orion McClelland, published by Unpossible Game Labs. Mark, we finished our Reichbusters campaign, and that's no small feat. Finishing a large campaign in this always-playing-the-new-stuff type of field is... Nothing to be smugged at. Reichbusters is to be smugged at. Interesting. Is Reichbusters is a occult alternate universe World War Two sort of take the dirty dozen in and and beat up the Nazis. It's put out by Mythic Games and designed by GW legend Jake Thornton. And and we're looking at least two of us, I think everyone had fun. We really got stomped in our last two games. The second to last game was sort of like a sort of a side mission. Go fight the giant. You know, we've heard rumors of this giant big beast. Go see what it's all about. Turns out the rumors were true. Rumors were true. And it was pretty big? It was big. Okay. And it was stompy. Good job. Second mission. It's the final mission. Of course, it's going to be bad. Cascading circus music. And it was awful right off the first roll. Yeah, there was some dispute whether it would be more appropriate to have the circus music or the yakety sax theme, but when that's your primary point of disagreement, you know things went real bad. It's like he he went to unlock the first door and accidentally, instead of using lock picks, used a grenade, <laughs> and then it went from there. Oops-a-daisy. <laughs> so yes, it's one of these games where you're constantly making these sound checks, which is good and bad, because it's interesting to sort of finally do like a stealthy type game, but... If it goes bad, it goes very bad. And that was our Reichbuster. You don't, you won't have to hear about it again. I promise. Played a game called The Silver Bayonet. This is a tabletop miniatures game designed by Joseph McCulloch. Joseph McCulloch is the designer of Frostgrave as well as Rangers of Shadowdeep. You've heard me talk about the latter game as the Handwerker and I played a mini campaign or at least uh, several linked modules of a campaign of Rangers of Shadowdeep. The Silver Bayonet, as well as reflecting back on my trying to get back into miniatures games and the miniatures rule sets that I really, really like, it's almost an act of magical alchemy to make a miniatures game really work. Because here's what you need. You need a setting that that motivates you. You need it to be visually appealing. You need the action selection or action resolution system and the core mechanics related to that to be somewhat satisfying. And on top of all that, often you need the scenarios to be good. 
And typically, these are produced by independent operators because the, the Games Workshop stuff doesn't appeal me. It doesn't appeal to me aesthetically or financially. And so mostly that means the indies. So aside from Infinity, which has a relatively substantial company behind it now with their success of Infinity, this is mostly indies. And so Joseph McCulloch gets a lot of the things right most of the time, but up till now I've, I've hated most of his combat resolution mechanisms. It's led to uninspired gameplay, and you're mostly there for the trappings and the narrative and the visual appeal of it all. The Silver Bayonet is thematically very, very appealing to me. It's the Napoleonic Wars, but with monsters. And so the various powers of the Napoleonic Wars commission monster hunting units called Silver Bayonets to go and exterminate or and or investigate rumors concerning supernatural activity. I am there. Huge fan of the Napoleonic Wars. Okay, let me rephrase that. I am an enthusiast of the history surrounding the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> Woo! Almost had to turn in my pacifist badge over there. Uh, and so the prospect of being able to make a squad of Russian musketeers and grenadiers and maybe add in a werebear, because werebears are available in the silver bayonet. Look, if, if the game gives you an option of getting a werebear, you take the werebear, am That's I right? right? 100%. Yeah. I'm glad you approve. And then we end up run smack into the problem of resolution mechanisms and scenarios. Now... The tried and true and I think very lamentable system that Joseph McCulloch has been using for a very long time, which is a D20 system with many, many defects, has been replaced with a 2D10 system, which immediately improves many of the aspects because you get a much nicer distribution of a probability curve when you're using 2D10. And suddenly a well-trained soldier with a plus two modifier and some sort of scrub or giant rat with a zero, well, this is substantially bigger difference than in, say, Rangers or Shadowdeep, where you have an incredibly well-trained expert ranger at a plus five fighting a giant rat at a zero, where very frequently nothing will happen, because that in a D20 system, that's not big much of a difference. That part was neat. I enjoyed that part. The scenario, I hated. The scenario I thought was very, very silly. It's you line up on either end of the engagement. Here are five points of interest you can ping. Two out of the five points of interest were strictly bad for you. So there wasn't really much impetus to do anything other than line up and fire musket shots at each other from either end of the board. That uh, Some people find that endlessly engaging. That's okay. That's cool. If you don't find that unfortunate in modern tabletop miniatures games, then the Silver Bayonet, if the theme appeals to you, go forth and the scenarios will probably not disappoint you because clearly that's not a priority of yours. These are also many of the same people who like Warhammer 40k and are very, very happy to just line people up and smash forces against each other. I like something with a little bit more sense of nuance, like the Infinity ARO system, like the bonus action systems that Roby Jenkins has introduced in his Horizon Wars Zero Dark and Infinite Dark, or the D12 system that he uses in Horizon Wars generally. Anyway, I've been spoiled by other systems. And so when there are a couple of areas that really don't hold up their weight, it really makes me question why I want to keep going down this rabbit hole. So I enjoyed the silver bayonet, but it also it was also the case that in the scenario, they didn't lean into the supernatural aspect. During the entire scenario, a single non-human monster showed up. One. Here we are loaded for bear and the rules say give everybody a unique magical item or like silver shot or bags of salt that they can use or a holy symbol or this, that, and the other. You have a cold iron versus silver and all these other different allergies and miracles you can call down. Well, none of this matters if it's musketeers fighting Spanish gendarme. Like it's, it just doesn't, it just doesn't come into play. So let me wondering why I was bothering with all of this stuff. Anyway. I am eager to try other scenarios. I'm willing to give it that benefit of the doubt. I'm not super optimistic, but I am curious to see what the system has in store. So I'm going to be reading the later scenarios, seeing if there's one that seems to lean in a little bit more to the supernatural, a little bit more reason to, to, to go towards the middle of the table rather than just fire shots at the extreme end. 
we'll see. And that's The Silver Bayonet by Joseph McCulloch, published by Osprey Games. So on Board Game Arena, you're not supposed to talk about games in alpha. So I'm definitely not going to talk about Barrage. That's no, definitely alpha. not. I'm not going to say that it was designed by Tissac and Vincent. I'm not going to say how very well it's implemented. And the fact that when you're not sitting around a table with people, you're not so concerned about winning. Not so much winning as being a uh, a challenge, right? I don't really care about winning, but I don't want to just like do nothing and, and throw the game off because I'm not playing at least halfway optimally. But when it's on Board Game Arena, you get to, you know, look at some different avenues and play a little bit differently than normal. That's what I love about Board Game Arena. It'll be out in beta soon, I'm sure. Speaking of things that are out in beta, Regicide by Badgers from Mars is now in beta on Board Game Arena. I really need to give that a try. This is uh, developed by UFM or UFM. Great implementation, great screen presence with all the information that it gives you. Tells you how much it's going to attack for, how much, you know, uh, you need to defend with. Where's my check? Finally for me, I got to play Aquatica. I commented in Bloat that I'm in a position due to a variety of circumstances to play somewhat lighter games, and that's fine. I love playing lighter games, but I'd like to, but knowing that going in, I'd like to choose the lighter games that I find a little bit more satisfying from a gameplay perspective rather than just any old thing lying around. And Aquatica, upon reflection, was one of the first games that I thought of because the combo system in Aquatica is really quite satisfying. It's a system that we've talked about before. The core action selection is what we call deck management, a la Concordia or Lewis and Clark or Flotilla even, where you play a card, it does what it says it does, and one of your cards gets all your cards back. But the key thing that I find really clever in Aquatica and what people really seem to enjoy, whether they grok how to exploit it well or not, which again is a key element of light games. Sometimes if you can't grok the system, you're just going to feel left behind and frustrated. Sometimes you're just going to be intrigued and there's a fun little space to play in. And Aquatica is definitely in the latter category, and that's one of the reasons why it's so approachable. And in Aquatica, when you get a location, it slides into this lovely triple-layer board. Double-layer boards are for peons. Triple-layer boards are where it's at, and you can further keep sliding up, and when it's fully slid up, you can eventually score it, which is what you want to do, but the way you slide it up is by triggering its bonuses. It's this fascinating space, and I don't you don't see it often, where it's a bonus, and you have to conspire to find a way to execute the bonus as quickly as possible. It's really cute and clever. It's like, this is a great thing. It makes me powerful. How can I use it right now? I gotta find a way to use it. It's, it's, it's a joy. Everyone I've introduced it to really likes it. The theming is whatever, something, something underwater, something, something, but the art is still very appealing. You don't really care about the theme, but you care about some of the cards because they look really cool. Yeah. I want that giant shark with, yeah. Meg. That kind of the, thing. The shark has a name. Yeah. Sorry. Its name is Meg. Meg. Yes. Meg the shark. Meg the shark. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that was Aquatica by Ivan Tuzovsky and Cosmodrome Games. The expansion is also really good. You can play with elements of the expansion, leave it out. Aquatica Cold Waters. Good times had by all. Those are the games we played this week. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I only have two quick little pieces of Kickstarter news. The first one being the Grand Carnival expansion is out on Kickstarter. The Grand Carnival came out. It's sort of a Tetromino placing tiles, building your little carnival, two-layered. You still first had to put out foundations and you're putting out carnival stuff. It seemed interesting. Now they have an expansion. I've yet to play it. Is it monorails? (laughs) <laughs> it is Sorry, called it is called on the road so maybe you're building roads it's up on kickstarter right now so you get the main game and expansions price is halfway decent and the other thing is cute news for kickstarter it's called kittens love sushi <laughs> yet another adorable project on kickstarter check it out My brief bit of Kickstarter news is Omicron Protocol, the skirmish game in a box for which I have a fair degree of enthusiasm, has two new characters available. It's called Omicron Protocol Critical Condition. So this is a very, very small amount of new content, just two new characters. But characters, as I've commented before in Omicron Protocol, have a fair amount of grit to them, if anything, possibly too much for my set of preferences. But that's sometimes a good problem to have. But this is one of those Kickstarters where, of course, they're willing to sell you everything they've released before. So if you're all curious about Omicron Protocol, it's up on Kickstarter for another few days. I'm a little bit late to this particular party, but I have pledged to get the two new characters. These are dual faction characters, so you can add them to one of two different factions. You've got a lizard and you've got a park ranger. So, you know, you're covering the bases, That's what I say. That's the whole game right there. Fighter, rogue, park ranger, lizard. Those are the four core classes you need in your skirmish game. Well, finally, for me, just to follow up on some of Walker's non-comments on Board Game Arena, because he hasn't talked about Board Game Arena this week, I would just like to reflect on the fact that about a year ago, when Asmodee purchased Board Game Arena, everyone, including ourselves, were somewhat concerned. And I'm not ready to say that the concerns were unfounded, but I'm very happy to say that so far those concerns haven't manifested. Every week we we get new news of something coming out of Alpha or a new thing getting added to Alpha that either is not connected to Asmodee or is just a great game that needs to be adapted even though that's out of print. And it is hard to complain too much about a service that remains free if you want it to be free that has put in substantial resources into adaptations of both El Grande, which is long out of print for no good reason, and of course Tigris and Euphrates, which is also out of print. And so, quite frankly, given that this is all, this is a great way to keep classic Euros effectively in the radar to, to give people the opportunity to try these things from the back catalog if they're so inclined, not being a gatekeeper, I'm just saying if you're so inclined. 
I really applaud the fact that Board Game Arena has this outlet available, and the nightmare scenario of everything being behind a paywall and it only being about pumping the latest and greatest new Asmodee Day thing hasn't shown up. Now, of course, having said this out loud, I'm sure it'll happen next week. And right now they have the another they have these calendar events that come out all the time. Another calendar event, new game every day for the next 30 days. They're already on game day 10. All sorts of new stuff coming out. A lot of it small, little, tiny games I've never heard of. But new game every day, nonetheless. It's got Tigers, Euphrates, El Grande, and Regicide. Exactly. I mean, could I, I would love to have Raw and Blue Moon and, and a few Mac Gertz games and maybe a David Thompson or two. But honestly, like, pff, already spoiled for choice. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game, which is Sakura Arms. Sakura Arms is designed by Backafire which is the nom de guerre of a Japanese designer who designed 2011's Tragedy Looper, 2012's Code of Nine, and a design from 2020 entitled, Are You Telling Me This Genius Scientist Can't Get the First Place? Question mark. I love Japanese titles, Walker. They make me happy. I would just like to note that these are some other titles of some novel series. I, I read Japanese light novels. I've never read any of these Japanese light novels, but the titles make me very happy. Reborn as a vending machine. I now wander the dungeon. I'm a spider, so what? And Another World's a Zombie Apocalypse is not my problem. Fantastic. That is a culture that knows how to title things. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Sacro Arms was initially published in English in 2016 by AEG. It featured eight of the characters that are in the expanded universe of Sakura Arms. But in 2018, a third edition of the game, the AEG version was based on the second, was published in Japan with a new distribution model and with additional expansions and new characters being added on the reg. Level 99 Games of Battlecon and Exceed fame, the natural home of a two-player card battler, because that is their bread and butter, ran a Kickstarter to reprint Sacro Arms in the third edition with more characters, a total of 18, and it has been recently successfully fulfilled, unless you live in Canada, in which case, suck it. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Sacro Arms? In Sacro Arms, you're jockeying for position with your opponent, trying to guess what cards they're going to play and staying out of their range while keeping within your optimum range. You're reacting to shenanigans, you're trying to keep your aura full, and then you're beating down your opponent. Sacro Arms is a card battling game. Make no qualms about it. It's very much knowing your opponent's deck and anticipating their gameplay. First thing you do is you draft characters. You each are going to draft two characters and you're going to combine their, their decks. Each deck has seven normal cards and, and four ultimates. So from those 14 normal cards, you're going to pick seven. And from those eight ultimates, you're going to pick three. And then it's fight time. So Walker, you previously declared in this episode quite accurately, based on my experience of showing you games, that you do not enjoy two-player card battling games. You don't like Battlecon. You don't like Radiant. You don't like Arc Worlds. Those are just, uh, you know, an, I'm an arbitrary smattering of two-player card battler, battling games that I thoroughly enjoy. Well, Arc Worlds was kind of okay. Uh, that you've bounced off of hard. Exceed. Exceed as well. I, I'm not a huge Exceed guy. We, I've never played Exceed to you, but I think uh, Dr. Stallone tried to show you Exceed. That's that. That's his bag. What was the other game that we played then? There was a game that had tons of characters and white decks, and I played the Scarecrow a bunch of times. And Scarecrow? Level, no. Yeah, another level 99 game. Doesn't matter. I played like a, a scarecrow-y type guy. Uh, well, what's it? I thought it was, I'm pretty sure we played Exceed. 
I've played Exceed twice. Okay. Once with Dr. Stallone. What, what other big card battling game do you have then? Uh, Battlecon. Battlecon. Sorry, yes. That was it. Sorry. I said Battlecon. You did say Battlecon, yeah. <laughs> so with that, with that disposition, I'm not going to say prejudice, but with that set of preferences and with that disposition in mind, do you enjoy Sakura Arms? I do enjoy Sakura Arms. I think it's mostly to do with the, the time it takes to play and the theme in general and the variability because there's so many characters and you're picking two and you're combining them together. So there's little less of knowing exactly what your character has and you're cycling a very small deck over and over. So you get to know their deck a lot quicker than you normally would. And like I said, it's over before you know it. And it's, it's got a little bit of a grind to it, which I'll, we'll talk about later. That's one of the, you touched on one of the key aspects that I re- really appreciated about Sacrum Arms ever since I tried it when it was first published by AEG. How a session evolves and how new information enters the system, I find really fascinating because despite the fact that it is a very brief game, as you highlighted, your player, as a player, you start with a general sense of the characters that they've drafted. More on that later, though. I thought you, uh, the AEG version and the Japanese version give you a little bit better sense of what to expect in terms of range outputs, because range is very, very, very important. And jockeying for range, what would be called footsies in a fighting game, is incredibly consequential in Sakura Arms. But you start with just a general knowledge of what their ideal ranges might be, but then they start showing you the cards they've drafted by playing them against you. And so you get an evolving sense of what they're capable of doing. And even near the end game, though, even as you've seen practically everything they can play normally, there are still those ultimates, which can completely decide the game. And so there's a lovely balance, I find, at every stage of Sacker Arms between what you can expect and what might be a surprise. And navigating that sense of uncertainty and knowledge simultaneously keeps me engaged, but it also, I think helps make the game approachable even for people who don't like these types of games. Because I, I, this, very much like Guards of Atlantis, there's a very, very active Discord community, and they play online all the time, and I wouldn't want to play with them. <laughs> Nothing against them. And yeah, I, no, no, just that we'd get crushed by them. <laughs> They've and, seen and it they, all before. And they would point out every, like, suboptimal play oh, that yeah. you did right right from the, you yeah. know, the decks you chose at the beginning Absolutely, of the game. Absolutely, 100%. But... Nonetheless, I feel like I'm constantly learning in a very pleasant way. Let's just uh, let's just go down on the ultimates, just because you brought it up. I like the ultimates because they're out right at the beginning of the game. It's not one of these things where you're going to fluke into drawing it just when you needed it, right. or not being able to get it when you want it. They are face down right from the beginning, and you can see on your opponent's board whether or not you know if they have like six. It's I don't want. I'm not going to go into the whole right. you know layout of your boards because there's all sorts of intricate ways these. Uh, Sacra pedals. Really cool pedals move around your board, but your life usually goes into your uh, flare. As you start taking damage, you get flare, and that's how you power your ultimates, yeah. Just so. So you can see if they have a bunch of flare, then you can be sort of worried, and so when you need your ultimates, they're there. Well, that's that's another fascinating element that I think really helps to differentiate Sacra Arms from a lot of other card battlers. It's a, it's really about managing this one resource. There's one resource that exists in the game, and there are these sacro pedals. And where they are, it could be range, if it's on the distance track, it could be life, if it's in your, if it's in your life pool, it could be a blade of armor, if it's in your aura, and moving them around and making sure they're in the right place at the right time 
is incredibly important, and that also helps with the overall tempo and arc of a given session. Because at the start of the game, there are no tokens in, in Shadow, and what that means is you can't really play enchantments. Those are the, the, the cards that have a prolonged duration. You don't really have that option at the start of the game to do that. And similarly, the ultimates are out of reach. But a little bit like Gloomhaven... One of the things that I really like about Gloomy, this is a bit of a stretch, but, but come with me, Walker. I can see that you're suspicious. You, Let's go on a journey. <laughs> let me take you on a mind journey, Walker. One of the things that I think is underappreciated about Gloomhaven is that it sense, has a sense of climax. You go to the final room, and suddenly you're playing all of your one-shot abilities, and you're not just recycling cards anymore. You're playing out your huge attacks, and it feels great. And it's a nice little capper to the system. Similarly, in a game of Sacker Arms, you start off with trying to manage the distance, and it's all a very standard game of footsie, and you're just doing basic attacks that do a couple points of damage. Near the end of the game, there's plenty of tokens in Shadow, and so there's room to play with it there, and everyone has so much flair, and the ultimates are popping off, and so it really feels like you're going to a crescendo. I think Gloomhaven is a great example, because another way it compares to Gloomhaven is sort of a, the grind that I talked about earlier. Grind is a negative word. I, don't know, I shouldn't use it, but uh, as you go through your deck in Sacra Arms, you need to reshuffle your deck, and you don't get to do it for free, and you have to pay something. Just like in Gloomhaven, it slowly like, grinds out the mission. Attrition. It's the attrition. It's the timer of the game, and they work relatively the same way. So you got to – either you can sort of stay in the round with your cards and sit, take some life points or some aura points and just draw, or you can – totally flip your deck over and shuffle it up and start anew. And it really helps with the character differentiation. One of the things that I have to worry about when introducing Sacra Arms for new players and when and or when playing it with people who don't really like attritional fights, because it's a very particular style of play, is to play against type. If you give me a set of options and one of them is you will grind out your opponent attritionally, even when the game is quick, we're not talking about a substantial increase in duration. It's about the feel of the game of burning through their hand and burning out their deck and so forth. I will gravitate towards that style of play nine times out of 10. And Sacker Arms gives me at least three characters that really lean into attrition. Uh, there's a character named Takoyo who just recycles her deck all the time. So you'll outlast your opponent. There's Karunu, which has ice. So you start freezing the opponent and it, it, it limits their ability to use armor and, and motion. And then there's Chikage who has poison, who just clogs up your opponent's hand with, with junk. Given my set of preferences and why I'm playing quote-unquote to win, which is never, I will pick those characters. But the fact that with such a simple set of interactions, you can really lean into this attritional aspect, it just gives you a, a small sense of the variety and the personality available in these different decks. Yeah, that's the, that's the key, what you just said there. The fact that those particular characters have such a unique abilities, and then when you combine them with other characters, and then the art style, it all brings it together. I think it's just a great table presence feeling game. Well, let's talk about the art, because this has been a subject of some discussion ever since the game was published by AEG in 2016 in North America, because we often talk about representation of women in board games. The cast is exclusively female. You draft to, uh, in, in theory, this is one of the, the aspects they're, thematic. They're goddesses in, in a tree. <laughs> exactly. They're goddesses in a Thank you, Walker. <laughs> yes. Uh, Join us for our ongoing uh, podcast of Walker summarizing Japanese mysticism. Not that this is drawing on Japanese folklore, but yeah, they're, they're, they're goddesses in a tree, sure. Uh, who you are, like, as a player avatar, is kind of left ambiguous. It's just you're channeling the powers of these two goddesses. Fine, whatever. So anyway, so the cast consists exclusively of 
women, many of them very, very young women, and a number of people object to the representation of women. What's what's your take on the way that women are presented in soccer arms? It's a very touchy situation. I agree. And when you base it off of the style, which mm-hmm. is anime style, yes. I think it's very much in line. It's very like Bullet. Bullet is put out by the same – by Level 99 Games, but it's not by the same main company. But it's the same sort of genre. It's, it's an all-woman cast, all pulled from anime style – it's uh, interesting art. you bring that up because Bullet itself has had several different – there's been two different expansions, one of them an expand alone, and some of the expansions have drawn more ire. We've only played Bullet Star. I've looked at some of the art for Bullet Orange. It's cut from a different cloth, no pun intended. Uh, and I agree with you that Bullet Star was, I think, a very good representation of non-sexualized anime-style women. Bullet Orange, I wouldn't necessarily give that same – uh, that, that same approval to. And when I look personally at the overall cast of Sakura Arms, I'm not embarrassed by it, but I'm not willing to endorse all of it. It's One, kind of where I come down. I would, I would be 100% in that. We have to also remember that it is a game that was originally published in Japan. Sure. And they have a different culture than we do. That's true. I don't want to get into cultural relativism no, that, and all that. No, of course, of course. It, it, they, they, so they've kept all the Japanese art. They, they, and originally, for what it's worth, it's worth noting, this is just a, a sort of historical note, they originally, during the Kickstarter, were going to redo the card layout, and in the face of persistent and aggressive fan backlash, they completely undid it. They just junked all the work they did and started again from scratch, readapting everything so that it looks almost but not quite identical to the Japanese versions, and I, for one, applaud them for that decision. I released an editorial, actually, during the Kickstarter about why I wasn't going to back the Kickstarter because of all these decisions they'd made, but they backtracked on all of them, and now they produced an edition that I think is as attractive as the Japanese version. In some cases, visually, I think it's preferable. Uh, They show more of the art in some of the cards than the Japanese version, but getting back to the representation of women, yeah, I'm not embarrassed, but I don't endorse all of it. Some characters are better than others. You know, Thalia, Himika, Karuru are... pushing the boundaries, different people are going to have different reactions. Overall, though, the reason why I'm not embarrassed by the product, and I, I, I've played it with a number of different women, and generally speaking, the reactions have been have been uh, neutral to positive, is because overall, even some of the more revealing outfits are things that humans would wear, as opposed to chainmail bikinis, right? We're not into that level of, this, this outfit was chosen purely for sexual exploitation. This outfit was chosen for stylized reasons rather than just the male gaze. Anyway, that's my view on the Japanese art. Not everyone's going to agree. Make up your own mind if you're at all curious, but that's, that's where we sit. So let's talk about this edition, just because you sort of touched on it there. And I think it was a bad call. They did three boxes with uh, six characters each. So just today, when I wanted to look at a rule book, I know that it wasn't under any of those editions anyway, but there's not sort of like a master edition where you can go to that Board Game Geek page and get all the information. Now you have three editions with the forms, you know, spread between them all. And that's not so much that you have to concentrate on, oh, well, it has to look right on Board Game Geek. But, but when someone's shopping for you know, where to start, there's not like a sort of master box or something that they can get. Agreed. And as a consequence, they can't have a master rule book. They can't have a master compendium. Like these are all extras that they could have done during the Kickstarter. Even charge me for it. That's fine. I'll pay you for it. 
but uh, you know, with a, a, a combined reference for how all the goddess special abilities work. Instead, it's distributed across reference cards. There's nominally a notion that the first box, the so-called Urina box, are the six easiest to play characters. That is nowhere printed on the box or in the rulebook anywhere. In order to get that information, you have to already be in the know. Compare, contrast this with, say, Guards of Atlantis. Guards of Atlantis, you commented uh, frequently, the on-ramping is excellent. They're very clear. This is the easy stuff. This is the slightly more complicated stuff. This is when you should try these other things. The way that they presented things here, they kind of sort of divvied it up that way, but they kind of did it in secret. And so it's a somewhat confused retail environment, and I'm I'm somewhat baffled. Yeah, and, and like you said, with the Guards of Atlantis, they have a star system. They have no ratings on any of these fighters, so you have no idea which ones are the complicated ones or which ones are the easy ones. They have no suggested first-time pairings that I could find anywhere, and they should have had that in in the books. I mean, these suggestions exist. They just buried them. They're not an actual documentation that you're going to find on the physical box. And so, it, as I say, I'm mostly baffled. And one thing that I really miss from the Japanese edition is the Japanese tarot cards that you use to draft the different goddesses. They had a little range summary that just highlighted perhaps the single most important piece of detail you need to know when fighting against them, which is at what ranges are they most deadly? The only way you can do that in the level 99 version is by kind of looking at the total summary of all the cards, which is a great addition. I'm a huge fan that they summarized all the cards. So you can just hand it to your opponent. This is These are the entire range of cards that I might be drafting. But you have to kind of abstract away from what ranges there are. And it, it, it's one minor thing that's gone that I really, really miss. Like, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they should have included everything into one box. Right. I'm Although just... that option as a Kickstarter exclusive might have been okay. But yeah, I agree. True. With you. Because the other point is the fact that it's it's good value. It's an easy way to gauge your interest. Yes. You can buy one box, which is reasonable. And then depending if you like it or not, then you can add more. But they still, that first box should have been a sort of, you know, starter set. And then the others should have been expansions. Right. Clearly. Or at the very least, put the star ranking somewhere on the back of the box. Like, because again, you get this information from Kickstarter updates and things like that, but it's not on the actual package itself. One thing that they added that is absolutely for the good in terms of approachability is if you don't want to draft your own deck, you don't have to. You just have to pick two goddesses that you like, and there are recommended deck setups for every single combination. Basically, all you have to do is pick two goddesses and pick a color, and you're off to the races. Some of those deck combinations are really super weird, but that's to be expected. You know, some interactions don't work out so well, but they did a good faith effort to try to make it so that you could hit the ground running in that way. So, because we talked a lot about in Guards of Atlantis where you're going to fall, you're going to run into barriers where you're not going to be able to do things. And you're going to hit that in this as well, where you're going to be at the wrong range, or you're going to be in the wrong stance, or you're going to be, you're going to have the wrong buildup. You have to do certain things before you play a card, or there's not enough tokens in a certain pool, or there are, there's a certain card type called full power where it's the only card you can play in a round. I don't know why they call it that. So, yeah. Yeah, so all of these things are going to sort of get in a, get in the way of newer players to get a good flow going in the game. I agree. There are a fair number, having taught this game to a number of different people, in a number of different contexts, in a number of different editions, all versions of Sakura Arms that I've played, and now I've, bas- I've basically played three different editions now, the AEG version, the Japanese version with translated paste-ups, and now the level 99 version. There is a higher than average proportion of, I'm sorry, you can't play that card now, and or it doesn't do what you think it's going to do. I hate having to say that as a game explainer, but sometimes it's just a cost of entry. And you're right, that is another similarity with Guards of Atlantis. 
So one thing we didn't talk about is there's uh, the attacks. And I like this sort of trade-off between uh, aura and damage. Because every attack, almost every attack. Most every attack. You can either take the damage. Sorry, I shouldn't say take the damage. You can take the loss in either aura or life. Or life. And if you don't have enough aura, then you have to take it in life. So it's this interesting sort of gameplay where you want to do some small attacks to work their aura down and then play the big attack so it all goes to life points instead. Or sometimes you just take the damage to life straight off because that's how you build up more flair. So that that dynamic is interesting too. The, the whole way the different types of damage are manipulated is one of the core aspects of Sacro Arms, and it's, it's an interesting bit. Again, and this is all because this all further plays into the fact that it's all the same token, just moving to different areas of the board. And there are a lot, it sounds like a lot of keywords, been throwing a lot, a lot, a lot of words around like focus. And it's our flare, job walker. We talk for and, a living. And shadow. And, and then on top of that, there are, there's a list of other 20 other keywords, but I think in comparison to like a game like magic or, or other card battlers, I think that is a low number. Yes. There, and when you're teaching the game, you can focus on the super important ones. This is how reactions work. This is how full power works. It used to be called throughout. I think throughout is much, much better because it's the thing that takes the entirety of your turn, but whatever. And uh, those are still kind of hived off in weird little banners. So again, that's one of the key, that's one of the frequent issues of, sorry, you can't play that because you've already done something else this turn. This is a full power card. It was the only thing you can do in your turn. That happens an awful lot. I think they could have changed the layout to make that less common or at least made it a better keyword. But Or, or maybe made it a little bit bigger on the card. Right. Because literally it's this two millimeter bar on your card that says right. full power. It, it's, it's again, that was one of the trade-offs they made. It's, that was in keeping with the format of the Japanese version so as to maximize the available art. There, I think, is one of those cases where I would have been willing to deal with a little bit more zoomed out art or, or a little bit less art to make that more prominent. But even a border around the whole card. That might have worked. Yeah. <laughs> In summary, I've been playing various versions of Sacra Arms for six years now, and it is one of my favorite two-player card battlers. The natural home of this series was with Level 99 Games from the beginning, as far as North American distribution is, based on their experience with Battlecon, based on their experience with Exceed. And with a couple of niggles, I think they've done a bang-up job of adapting the game. The distribution model is a little bit weird. It, wasn't, it isn't what I've chosen, and I might have changed a couple of the keywords, but overall, this is an excellent addition. You can get in, into it at a very, very low price, unless you're Canadian, in which case you'd better sit up and wait. And I think they've done a, a great job of listening to fan feedback, and the changes they've made have been with a gentle hand rather than the aggressive redesign they initially suggested. And so if you have any interest in a two-player card game, and even if you don't typically like card battlers, you might be like Walker, and this may be the one exception that proves the rule, and this may be the one that you actually like. I would encourage you to give a shot to Sacker Arms. Yeah, it's so much one for me that I insisted on us playing it way more than we'd normally play any other game because I really wanted to give this the attention that it deserved because it really is a great game. Well, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. That's all we've got time for for now. If you would like to get in touch with us with any feedback, you can find our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We are available in a variety of media. We will read everything you send us and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again very, very much for tuning in. We appreciate your time with us. And we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicking. 
Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.